Where in the world can you find a boiling river? And why do we call an exercising weight a dumbbell? Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy. Not always. Not always. No, (laughs) no, not always. And sometimes take a side road to sanity. Well, where in the world can you find a boiling river, Marsha? Yeah, I know there are boiling, you know, little ponds or sinkholes or places you can jump into, but a whole river? Yeah, you got things like that at Yellowstone, for instance. Right, right, right. But not a boiling river. Let's take a canoe ride down the boiling river today, honey. (laughs) But let me just guess. I will say uh, Australia. Okay. I was going to give you some choices. Oh, give Uh, me choices. Give me choices. Australia, (laughs) Indonesia, Peru, or Saudi Arabia? Oh, golly. I'll say, well, Indonesia sounds more exotic than Australia. Well, no. (laughs) It's not that. It's Australia. No, it's not. It's not that. Okay, it's in, it's in Peru, yes. It's called Shunai Timpishka, which is a legendary river that's so hot, the waters kill anything that fall into it. Really? Including people, I assume. Yeah, and animals. It's the world's largest thermal river, and it's located in the Peruvian Amazon jungle. How now, big is it? It's only about four miles long, the part that's boiling. And it's mystified scientists for years because boiling or near-boiling rivers in other parts of the world are mostly near volcanoes. Uh But the nearest volcano to this place is 400 miles away. So they've now determined it's fed by hot springs, some of which are actually hotter than 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. The river runs for about four miles over several thermal waterfalls, creating this unique natural phenomenon. And yes, the banks of the river are littered by the bodies of small animals unlucky enough to fall in. So again, the river is called Shunai Timpishka. Okay. In Peru. All right. Had no idea. Okay, why do we call an exercising weight a dumbbell? Dumbbell. I always thought that was because of people who used to frequent uh, gyms. Uh Uh-huh. No, it's much more interesting than that. Okay. At Canterbury, England, we're going back to the Middle Ages, Bob, it took 24 men to ring those very large church bells. Okay, yes. Okay. To do that, you had to build up your strength and develop skills. And novices used a silent or dumbbell without a dong in it to practice. It was a heavy weight suspended by a rope from a pulley on a scaffold. And people who wanted to build up their physiques soon copied with dumbbells of their own. So they were bells without the dinger. Without the ringers. Yeah. Well, oh, that's pretty interesting. That would, took 24 guys to ring the bell. That is amazing. Yeah. And that's in merry old England. And that's how we got the name Dumbbell. Well, speaking of England, I just recently got this from my English cousin, Paul Cupid. Now, Paul is the guy who alerted us to the uh, Ye old Fighting Cocks in St. Albans, England. That was a pub that recently closed. They claimed they'd been in business for 1,229 years. Remember that Yes, place? yes, I do. 
Recently, that claim was challenged, but he just told me about a new place. He said, this is another pub that lays claim to being the oldest in England, Bob. I was at university in Nottingham and spent many an hour in this pub. (laughs) This place is called Ye Old Trip to Jerusalem. This supposedly goes back to 1189 when King Richard the Lionhearted and his men gathered there before they journeyed to Jerusalem for the Crusades. Isn't that amazing? Stop here. (laughs) Throw in a cheeseburger. It was also said to be a local hideout for Robin Hood. It's called Ye Old Trip to Jerusalem. Where is that? This is in Nottingham, England. It supposedly goes back to 1189. Gosh, I always laugh when we came back from England to our historic town here, Cedarburg, which is everything is from the 1800s. (laughs) Nothing was 200 years old here. (laughs) That's right. Different uh, definition of historic. Okay, Bob, the first person in history whose name we know may have been a guy named Kushim, K-U-S-H-I-M, from Iraq. Okay. So who was he? Kushim? Kushim. Kushim from Iraq. (laughs) In what was then Iraq. Okay, so Iraq goes back to the Sumerian civilization and all of that. He was a king. He was a crown prince. Okay. That's where the, the brain goes. It's like an unwritten rule that everyday people's stories are lost. That's but, right. But Kushum was an accountant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so his name is on something, apparently. Yeah. 5,000 years ago, he was in charge of the barley count, and he signed this 5,000-year-old clay tablet, his name. And uh, some think that's not his name. That's actually the name for accountant. Oh, I see. <laughs> With the guy who kept tab. On, uh, on all the barley bales going in and out. But anyway, that's it. Kushim, he recorded barley storage. Basically a bureaucrat. Yeah. His job was record keeping. Yeah. Kushim. Yeah. Kushim. I wonder what Kushim did in his spare time. Yeah. Well, that's, I imagine that took up a lot of his time. <laughs> I don't, You're too serious. I know. I... All right. All right, Marsha, I have some nerdy questions here. Okay. What are equilibrioception, nociception, thermoception, and proprioception, which is also known as kinesthesia. (laughs) What are these terms? Oh, my God. (laughs) What are these terms, (laughs) Marcia? Well, uh, different uh, states of mind. There are five additional senses that scientists say we have. Really? Hearing, sight, smell, taste, and touch. Those are the five that we normally think of. Yeah. But scientists say we also have equilibrioception. Do you know what that is? Uh, You know when you're out of balance? That's it. That's right. Sense of balance. Mm -hmm. Very good. Nociception. (laughs) No uh, idea at all of the surroundings? No, it's a sense of pain. Oh. Uh, This one is called kinesthesia or proprioception. This is sometimes called the sixth sense. Yeah, the unknown ability to sense things. Sense of self-movement. And then there is thermoception. Temperature change. Very good. Uh-huh. Yeah, so those are considered the additional senses that we have. Yeah. And I bet it goes beyond that, too. Oh, yeah, beyond the big five. Okay, Bob, where will you find the oldest civilization in the world? The uh, cradle of civilization, that would be in Mesopotamia. Mm-mm. Uh-huh. No. No, no. Uh-huh. <laughs> Not anymore? No. Where do they think uh, it is? In 2016, an extensive DNA study by Cambridge University deduced that Aboriginal Australians are the world's oldest civilization. Really? Yeah. Indigenous Australian and Papuan ancestral groups migrated to prehistoric subcontinent in present-day Australia, New Guinea, and Tasmania about 50 
50,000 years ago. 50,000 years ago? <laughs> yeah. That's a long time. You are in awe of that number, 50,000 years ago. <laughs> Eventually, rising sea levels caused the separation of the islands and forced the aboriginal peoples into genetic isolation that developed into unique communities. So they're considered now, in this day and age, the oldest civilization. Well, I didn't know that. Now you do. Were there uh, palaces and things like that, huh? Not civilization, huh? <laughs> oh, okay. What U.S. state's state flag uh -huh. has the Union Jack in the top left corner? Really? Yeah. Have I've never, gosh, I don't think I've ever seen that. I haven't either. Is it? Uh, and we've been there. We have. Yes. I'll give you a choice. Loca okay. Massachusetts, New York, Alaska, or Hawaii? I'll say New York. That makes sense. But no. No, it's not. It's Hawaii. Really? Yeah. Huh. That is a mark of the Royal Navy's historic relationship with the Hawaiian Kingdom, which began in 1795 when the British explorer Captain James Cook and King Camomelia met. Okay. But I was surprised that Hawaii has the only flag of the U.S. flags with a Union Jack in it, and it uh, dates back to yeah. Captain Cook. Well, that is a surprise. And so is this. What do you think, Bob, is the average toll for the average ship traveling through the Panama Canal? Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of how much that would cost. See, it's like toll booths going into Illinois, those little... <laughs> <laughs> yes, on the Illinois. Or the, or the New York Thruway or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Okay, uh, is it like $1,000? Is it in the thousands of yes, dollars? Yes, it is. Okay, so let's say $10,000. Yeah, that's a lot. But the average toll is $150,000. Oh, my goodness. Yes. On average, it takes around 8 to 10 hours for a ship to travel through the Panama Canal, as opposed to two weeks if it made the journey around Cape Horn. At the edge of South America. Correct. Okay. However, there's a hefty fee for the convenience. Each commercial ship that passes through the canal has to pay a toll based on its weight. So the average toll is around 150000 but some larger ships pay much more. The record is held by a cargo ship called the MOL Benefactor from Hong Kong, and they paid $829,400 to pass through. Oh my goodness, I had no idea they cost so much. While ships regularly, even privately owned boats, have to pay between 800 and 3200 the lowest toll ever paid was paid by an American man named Richard Halberton. He swam the length of the canal in 1928, and they charged him, based on his weight, 36 cents. <laughs> so there's the long and the short of the tolls. The long and the short of it, the heavy and the light of it. Yeah. Uh, That's interesting. So now that cost goes on anything that you buy that happens to go through the Panama Canal. Wow, I didn't know it cost that much. Well, that keeps the uh, canal in, in business then. That's a lot of money. What that do they do with it all? It's got to be for maintenance and uh, upkeep of the canal. Because you can imagine these huge ships going through. There's damage every once in a while. All right, I've got a couple more human body questions here, okay? <laughs> so you've got a sinus condition. That's usually when you detect mucus flow. Ah. But how much mucus actually do we swallow daily? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'll say... I'll say a quart. That's right. Is a, it? <laughs> a quart of mucus, or as my source says, a quart of snot a day. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's from That's a Fact Jack. Oh. <laughs> this is one from the You Better Not Cry category. Studies show that men find the smell of women's tears unattractive. 
There's a smell. There's apparently an aroma for human tears, and men find it unattractive. Well, I didn't know. Don't that. cry. <laughs> Big girls don't <laughs> cry. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't either. I okay. never, I never heard of that. Okay, all right, Bob. What country has around eighty percent unique flora and fauna? That is Australia. Oh, good for you. Yeah, that country's got the animals, the plants. It was so isolated for millennia, and huh? all of it developed independently. Yeah, 80% of its plants and animals can be found only there. That includes the cuddly koalas, kangaroos, wallabies, wombats, and the feisty Tasmanian devil. And also, just for fun, they have about 100 venomous snakes that live there. Hey, that's a good time. <laughs> Always a good time. Yeah. This, I found this very interesting. What city is nicknamed the Malibu of the Midwest? The Malibu of the, the Midwest. The Malibu of the Midwest. Um, is it in Wisconsin? Yes, it is. Is it uh, in the Door County? No, it's not. Is it? Uh, it's Sheboygan, Wisconsin, believe it or not. No kidding. Well, they just, they surf there. That's the idea. <laughs> yeah. They, you can I, get a bratwurst and surf. I was unaware of this. This is only 40 miles north of where Marsha and I live. And we've been there many times, Sheboygan. It's called the Malibu of the Midwest for its popular surfing culture. Locals have been surfing Lake Michigan for more than 50 years. And for the past quarter century, they've hosted the annual Dairyland Surf Classic. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we do. We have so many fun things in Wisconsin. The Dairyland Surf Classic over Labor Day weekend. It's the world's largest freshwater surfing competition. So do you know why surfing is so great on the coastline? It's something about the geography there and the rocks that the waves are higher there than other places. It's because uh, Sheboygan juts out five miles into Lake Michigan, Uh which creates waves in in four directions with dangerous breakpoints along the coastline. Isn't that interesting, huh? Yeah, yeah, I love it. They do have surfing year-round there, but the peak season runs from late August through early April. It's lovely when it's all ice chunks. (laughs) Okay, time for a break, Bob. All right, you're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marsha. Smith. We're back. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. We do this every week for the Cedarburg Public Library in Cedarburg, Wisconsin. And then it goes out on podcast platforms all over the world. So I have uh, another world history question here, Marcia. Oh, thrilling. <laughs> now, even though King Tut was a minor king, those who discovered his tombs were astounded by the wealth set aside for him. What was unusual about his coffin? Now, this just comes from National Geographic recently did a uh, issue. Cover story. Yeah, because it was a 100th anniversary of King Tut's tomb, and they have brand new pictures of all these artifacts, and there's a huge new museum opening up in Egypt, too. It wasn't his his coffin inlaid in gold and rubies and diamonds? Yes, it was gold. Do you have any idea how many pounds it weighed? Oh, I will say 200 pounds. 243 pounds uh, of solid, solid gold. gold. Jeez. Solid gold. It was inside this immense sarcophagus, which was cut from a single piece of rare quartz. And then inside that, there were three mummy-shaped coffins nested one inside the other. And the innermost was not only solid gold, 243 pounds of solid gold. Jeez. Okay, Bob, why are vain people said to be looking for the limelight? 
What's the origin of limelight? The limelight, that comes from the old show business lights they used to use, and they would put lime in them and burn the lime, and it was a very bright light. Well, you know this. Yeah. Oh, darn. Okay. Well, I know a lot of that show business trivia. Yeah. That's interesting, though, isn't it? It is. The limelight. Yeah, okay. In the early days of theater, the actors were lit by gas lamps hidden across the front of the stage. Early in the 20th century, which isn't that long ago, it was discovered that a stick of lime, if it was added to the gaslight, it became more intense. So stage managers began to use the limelight to illuminate the spot on the stage where the most important action took place. Mm. And all the actors wanted to get in the, the limelight. limelight. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a unique distinction yes. to be in the limelight. Yes. And probably was pretty bright, hurt your eyes and so forth. A lot of those Klieg lights from the early uh, film days uh-huh. caused damage to people's eyes. Oh, did they? so bright. Okay, Marcia, uh, back to history. What famous ruler had a sword that was out of this world? This is a real this ruler? This is a real ruler. From out of the... Uh, I don't know. King Tut again. Again? Really? Yes. They found two daggers, and one of the two daggers on his mummy was made of iron that scientists believe came from a meteorite. Really? Yeah, and they have found other ancient swords made of that kind of metal, which was considered very prized and very unique, ah. and they came out of meteorites. They probably found it, uh, you know, hanging out in the desert or something. Was, what is this? Let's make a sword. Out okay, of that. another question for you about King Tut. Yeah. What does Downton Abbey have to do with King Tut? Well, that's a good question. Downton yeah. Abbey, Down- one of your favorite <laughs> PBS TV shows. That was fun. Highclere Castle, that's the grand country estate 50 miles west of London, which was the setting for Downton Abbey. That was owned by the man who bankrolled the King Tut archaeologist Harold Carter. Oh, okay. George Edward Stanhope, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. How did I not get that? My goodness. He was a rich kid who had a car crash. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, they always had the Downton Abbey heirs, always had these cars. It was true. He had a near-fatal car accident. And that badly injured his lungs, so that's when his doctor advised him to begin spending time in Egypt to escape the cold, damp winters. And it was there that he befriended the archaeologist. And then he said, I can help fund these things uh-huh. you're doing here. Okay. And so that's how Downton Abbey and all of that came to intersect with King Tut. I vaguely remember reading something about that. Okay. All right, Bob, here's a quickie. Do larger animals' hearts beat slower or faster than small animals? I think they beat... Faster. No, no. I think small animals beat... Wait a minute. I could I could justify this more than yeah, one way. Yeah, there is. I'll say they beat faster than small animals. Uh, larger animals? Yes. Yes, absolutely wrong. The <laughs> <laughs> elephant hearts beat 25 to 35 times per minute, drastically slower than a mouse heart, which pumps 450 to 750 times per minute. Jeez. That's pretty rapid. Scientists believe size is a factor in how fast the heart works. In bigger bodies, it has to work more efficiently to power every cell without wearing out. Well, isn't that interesting? That's fascinating. And how many times does a mouse's heart has to pump? 450 to 750 times per minute. That's its pulse. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. Think yeah. of this. Can you imagine yeah. seeing that on the machine at, at the uh, fitness <laughs> club? What's wrong with me? 
Uh, Mr. Smith, your EKG is a little off. Jumping but, off uh, the charts yeah. there. But uh, like I said, uh, it has to pump more efficiently to power every cell in your body if you're bigger without wearing out. So it slows down. That is amazing. That's very fascinating. Okay, I have a question for you. We're in the month of February, and February is the leap month. You know, we had to add days to the month in order to get the calendar in order. I've heard that, yes. All right, so uh, what is not a term for people who are born on leap day? Okay. Leapers, <laughs> leapings, uh-huh. leap babies, leapsters. <laughs> uh, I like leapsters. Leapsters. Okay. That's not one of them. <laughs> I was right. Is that what you're trying to say? Uh, yeah. Okay, thank you. So, who introduced Leap Day, Marcia, oh, to the calendar? Who is Someone I know? I'll give you choices here. Okay, thank you. The General Time Convention of 1883, <laughs> Benjamin Franklin, the Mayans, Julius Caesar, or Alexander the Great? I'll say the Mayans. Leap Day and Leap Year go all the way back to 45 B.C. and Julius Caesar. Wow. He reformed the calendar system based on the Egyptian solar calendar. The Julian calendar added an extra day, February 29th, every four years to ensure the calendar corresponded with the Earth's movement around the sun, which takes a little more than 365 days. Isn't it interesting that even that far back they could measure things? I, I'm astounded. What kind of instruments did they have yeah, to know? I'm astounded that... Uh the mathematical ability of people back then. Was well, we always, I think, misjudge ancient peoples and how yeah. smart they were, yeah. how brilliant they were, just as brilliant as people are today. Yeah, okay. All right, Bob. Who, in history, coined more New English words than anyone else? Well, we always think it's Shakespeare. Yeah, well, he's uh, second. Second? Yeah. Second. So who was the first? Mm-hmm. The first person. See, is it somebody in recent times? No. Okay, so it's ancient. Not ancient. Well, Aristotle, somebody like no, that? No, no. Okay, who? No. English poet John Milton. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. And he created 630 new words and phrases. 630? Yeah, including such words as debauchery, which we use here all the time, <laughs> fragrance and pandemonium. What was that one? Fra uh, fragrance? Fragrance. Really? He yeah. came up with that term? Yeah, and pandemonium. It's the name of Hell's Capital City in Paradise Lost, an epic poem retelling the biblical allegory of Adam and Eve. It's considered to be one of the finest pieces of English literature. So Milton leads the pack, but William Shakespeare had 500 word coinages to his name. Pretty close. It, 630 versus 500. Yeah. So Milton holds the uh, key. Have you ever read, Bob, uh, Paradise Lost? No, I haven't. Have you? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like you don't think it would be good to read. Oh, well, I don't know what situation I would say, oh, today I'm going to start uh, Paradise Lost. But, okay. All right. Marsha, mail delivery. At one point, there were more than one mail deliveries to most cities and towns in the United States per day. Did you know that? Yeah. Sometimes it was twice a day because it's in Sherlock Holmes. They were getting mail all the time. Okay, but in the United States... Uh, twice a day. Yeah, and sometimes it was up to six times a day. What? Yeah. The number of daily trips made by letter carriers from Maine post offices in 1905. These are cities that had at least five deliveries per day back then, okay? Uh -huh. Buffalo, New York, Cincinnati, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, Detroit, Michigan... Kansas City, Minneapolis, Pittsburgh, and St. Paul. And Philadelphia had seven. Really? Seven deliveries of mail per day in that city to most parts of the city. Now, here's a question for you. When was 
daily delivery begun in the United States? You mean the year? Yeah. Before this year, citizens picked up their mail at the post office, wherever they lived. Okay. I'll say after the Civil War? It was during the Civil War, 1863. Okay. That's when free mail delivery was authorized in cities where the income from the local postage was more than sufficient to pay for all expenses. Before this year, citizens picked up their mail at the post office. And I have to make a correction here. In 1905, letter carriers working out of New York City's main post office made nine daily deliveries per day. What the hell happened to that service? <laughs> Why can't yeah. we have that kind of service now? Just you're on a constant loop on your route. That is, uh, and, and some places had Sunday deliveries. Okay, well, that's fascinating. You know, Bob, it is Grammy time. Okay. And that doesn't mean graham crackers. I'm talking about the Grammy records. The Grammy Awards for... For music, sound, okay. Yes, yes. The first Grammys were given out, and you know what year? I think it was 1966, something like that? It's actually 1959. 59, okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. And the top award winner, the very first top award winner that year went to an Italian guy. Can you name the song? Tony Bennett. Can you name the song or the singer? No, Tony Bennett was not it. Oh, it wasn't Tony Bennett? No. Okay, who was it? Domenico Mendugno for his famous song. You know this song. Volare. Oh, yes. I remember that song, but whoa, I didn't, whoa, know, whoa, whoa. didn't know his name. Yeah, me either. I didn't remember the name, but certainly the song because a lot of people sang it. And some other winners that first year, the Chipmunk song. Oh, yes. Yes. David Seville. <laughs> uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Count Basie won for some various albums. Catch a Falling Star by... Perry Como. Yes, won. yes. Tequila, remember that? Mm-hmm. By the Champs. And the Kingston Trio's Hang Down Your Head. Well, Tom Dooley. Yes. That was a great song. Yes. I remember growing up thinking, well, these uh, these Grammys are kind of political because back when we were listening to rock music, hardly any rock artists got them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Elvis Presley ever won a Grammy. So they were kind of a popularity contest among the people who ran the record business, kind of discernment who got those uh-huh. awards. Rock groups were not getting those those awards at all, and they should have. Yeah. Rock and roll was a thing that was going to pass quickly. That's right. It was never going to amount to anything. That's right. Just like I predicted rap would only be here That's for right. a year. You're always so good about predicting those things. <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. Okay, Marcia, what is the coldest inhabited place in the world? Antarctica. It is not in Antarctica. The coldest inhabited town on earth. Town, town. Place, yeah. Yeah. It's a village. Takes a village to freeze to death. Is it uh, in Russia? (laughs) Yes, it is. Takes a village to freeze to death. Okay, what's... Amyakon. Ah, how did I not know that? Which sounds like some kind of software you might buy today. Yeah, it does, it does. Or an app. I've got the Amyakon app on my... No, Amyakon is a Siberian village, 500 Hardy souls, they have no hotels, despite an increase in tourism. (laughs) Really? Yes. So visitors are warmly welcome to stay in local homes. How cold is it? Well, winter temperatures often hover around 45 degrees below zero Fahrenheit without the wind chill factor. Uh, That's nippy. You can catch a flight from Moscow or the nearby city of Yakutsk. From there, you simply hire someone to drive you over the infamous Road of Bones. Wow, That's a 44-mile journey. Don't ask me about that. Oh, my gosh. But that is the coldest inhabited place in the world. O-Y-M-Y-A-K-O-N. Amyakon. All right. I'm going to finish up with a quote. Bob, this is by Jan Chosen Bays. A steady diet of negative news makes the mind ill. 
give the mind the good medicine of silence, beauty, and loving friendship. Well, those are all good antidotes to negative news. You're yes, right. yeah. And I'll finish up with Winnie the Pooh, from okay. Zen to Winnie the Pooh. All right. People say nothing is impossible, but I do nothing every day. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. That's great. Well, we hope we've done a little more than nothing for you today. We love doing this show, and we invite you to contribute. If you have some thoughts or an interesting fact you'd like us to point out, you can do that by going to our website, theofframp.show, and scrolling all the way down to contact us. That's it for today. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. We hope you join us next time when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia here on The The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.